Well, um, we can probably go ahead and get started. Um, I guess I was going to talk some about the role of story and how it sort of finds a side door, um, circumvents a lot of our defenses. Luckily, Sally Lloyd-Jones already did that in a far more um, articulate and moving way than I could, so that's nice. Um, but there's um, an author, Tim O'Brien, who wrote a book, I think, about the Vietnam War, um, and he talks in there about story truth sometimes being truer than um, a lot of facts or um, kind of figures or statistics. Um, good stories sort of distill a truth or several truths about human reality and the world that we live in. And so a lot of stories that even though they're fiction, like the Iliad um, or the Odyssey, um, a lot of those stories, because of the truth that they find, have endured throughout history, have come to shape um, cultures and religious traditions, and are referenced by authors for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it seems to me that, at worst, Genesis falls into that category. Um, if we don't believe that the Bible has any kind of special status whatsoever, then the stories of Genesis still rank among the best of world literature for their enduring power um, and the fact that history has judged that they contain um, a high degree of truth about the human experience. Um, as Christians, we see Genesis as great literature, and then we see it also as something more. Um, we see it as a revelation of God himself to us, um, a revelation concerning who we are, who God is, our relationship to him, and ultimately the plan of salvation and allurement, which Dr. Knoll was just speaking about. Um, one interesting thing from John Zoll's devotional yesterday was he was talking about identity as pedigree. And actually, I should preface this with, um, we're actually just going to be talking about the story of the sacrifice of Isaac when God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love and sacrifice him. That's the story we'll be talking about. By way of background, um, do some of the lead up to it. And that's one of the chapters in the book, and there are 11 others. Um, but anyway, so identity is pedigree. We have this idea that, um, like in the South, where are you from? Um, who do you know? What culture do you live in? And we use these things as identity markers and support systems, whether it's a environmentalist Christian funk bassist, I think that was the example, um, or whether it's just, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, I go to such and such a church, I'm in these social organizations, I'm friends with these people, I do this profession. Um, right at the start of salvation history, we see God coming to Abraham and telling him to get up and leave, to go out into the wilderness where he doesn't know anyone, 
has no connections, um, doesn't have a sort of social media thing where he can find a friend of a friend who has some family, you know, over in Egypt and set him up for dinner or something. He's just going out into the wilderness um, to be totally alone. So God is stripping him of this identity of pedigree. And a lot of what we'll see in Genesis is characters being progressively um, stripped of more and more of their identity markers so that God can use their weakness and their dependence upon him as um, the basis for a family and ultimately, um, by the time of the Exodus, as a nation. And so Abraham, he, he doesn't have any any place. He doesn't have a home anymore. He's a nomad. He only has his family as a support. And of course, he runs into problems with his family too, because he and Sarah, his wife, um, can't have children. And they've been trying for decades and have not been able to. So this is another area, even Abram's ability to have a family and have descendants and a legacy um, is, is not present. It's, he's in his 80s by the time that God promises him, or maybe 70s, old, by the time that God promises him children, and even after God promises him children, anyone who's familiar with the story can correct me. I don't know the exact number, but I think it's something like 20 years before um, he sees that come to fruition. Um, and we, we see Abraham the whole time being reduced to a state of dependence by God. He tries to take things into his own hands. He tries to say that um, God's promise will come true, but it's just up to me to figure out how. You know, I'm God's instrument. And he ends up having a child with his wife's um, servant and starts pulling his family apart. So the one kind of grab he makes at self-sufficiency becomes a total disaster. Anyway, at last he does have a child because it seems like identity in the real sense um, or the spiritual sense cannot really be earned or achieved or gotten by all of the sundry mechanisms of human control and manipulations, the forces we exert on the world to make things go our way. This fails for Abram. Um, and a lot of times, on a, if we take a deeper look, it, these things fail for us too. And so identity must be given by God. And, Ab and Abram is given a child, Isaac. And Everything is going well. God has brought order into his life. He's given Abram a legacy. He's um, protected him and allowed him to become very wealthy and allowed him to earn the respect of neighboring kings in the region and sort of all of this backstory. Um, and then God comes and visits Abram one more time. And this time, God is asking him to kill his son. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, um, and take him up to the mountain and put him to death. So 
if I can find my Bible, I'm just going to read the story, um, and then I'm going to get my thoughts on it for a little bit, and then maybe we can talk about it a little bit too. Um, so let me find the passage. Here we go. Um, so the Genesis narrative so far has been on a sort of grand scale about all these great events going on and battles and promises of nationhood. And then all of a sudden here in chapter two, it slows down. It comes very down to earth, concrete. 22.1. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the word for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice." So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The way that I heard this passage um, analyzed in Bible study was always something along the lines of Abraham was a person of faith, God wanted him to do this, and he did it, and you know, all is well. It's like if God told me to move to uh, California and I didn't want to, and then finally I did, and it turned out great, you know. But I think 
we really have to, before we can really see a deeper grace element to the story, we have to see the horror. Um, back in, I want to say 2006, there was a woman in Texas who killed two of her sons and almost killed the third um, by attacking them with a rock because the voice of God had told her to. And I think we have to see Abraham as more similar to her than to the sort of man of faith we hear about in Sunday school. It is faith, but it's an uncomfortable sort of faith. And it's the kind of faith that if God had not provided the ram, um, Abraham would have been a, I can't remember the name of the crime, I think it's filicide is the side for that, but... So, Abraham is actually becoming a murderer. What God is asking him to do is murder. Um, and so anyway, just sort of going through some of the dynamics of the story. One thing I really liked that Paul Walker quoted yesterday was Terry Eagleton, and I'm going to requote that. He says, The compulsion to believe is for those who are too timid to exist in the midst of ambiguities without anxiously reaching out for some copper-bottomed truth. The desire for religion is the craving for an authority whose emphatic thou shalt will relieve us of our moral and cognitive insecurity. Ethics, or the law of God, um, is right and good and true. But when it fails to coincide with human freedom, it can be the sort of fallback that Eagleton says. We don't have to exercise our freedom and make different choices and live in the anxiety of being a choosing subject because we are just sort of told from the outside what we should do. We can wrap up our identity in that. I mean, how many of us haven't prayed to God at some point, you know, Lord, just tell me whether I need to move to this place or this place. Um, Take this job or hold out for this one. And a lot of times I think what we want is an authority whose emphatic thou shalt will relieve us of our moral and cognitive insecurity. So the law can become a sort of um, doppelganger or a double into which we create this version of our best self by acting in accordance with it. And so far in his life, Abraham has managed to do that. He has, for the most part, um, except for his relationship with his wife's servant, um, Abraham's freedom has coincided with God's law. And that's one part of his identity that's rock solid. And then God comes to him and tells him to become a murderer, um, strips his ethical identity from him and says, Abram, you will become totally guilty of this um, act. So, in some sense, 
Abraham's call is to become guilty, and he actually does. He, he doesn't kill his son, but he decides to. He draws the knife to. And it's only God that stops him. And as the two are walking up the mountain, you see this where Isaac is carrying the wood for the fire, which will be his physical death. And his father, Abraham, is carrying the knife um, for what will be his ethical death um, and also the death of his legacy. And Abraham will be guilty of that. And it seems there's some element here of a call to identify um, as a guilty person. Abraham must know himself both as someone with faith and as someone with sin. And in the sacrifice of Isaac at the absurd command of God, we see these two coinciding. To get, and I think too, um, rather than just sort of looking at a lot of Bible knowledge that for me, empathy is a good way to get into the story, try to put ourselves in the character's shoes and feel what they're feeling. And I'm not a parent, so there are probably some of you who could um, <clears throat> understand Abraham more closely than I could. And we can get on to some of that later. But I really like uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling, his thoughts on this particular scene. And I really like the way that he steps into Abraham's head and tries to do these sort of imaginative scenarios. Um, and here's one of those scenarios right at the beginning of the work. It was early in the morning when Abraham arose. He embraced Sarah, the bride of his old age, and Sarah kissed Isaac, who took away her disgrace, Isaac her pride, her hope for all the generations to come. They rode along the road in silence, and Abraham stared continuously and fixedly at the ground until the fourth day, when he looked up and saw Mount Moriah far away. But once again, he turned his eyes toward the ground. Silently, he arranged the firewood and bound Isaac. Silently, he drew the knife. And then he saw the ram that God had selected. This he sacrificed and went home. From that day henceforth, Abraham was old. He could not forget that God had ordered him to do this. Isaac flourished as before, but Abraham's eyes were darkened, and he saw joy in Abraham. Um, this is actually probably a pretty plausible scenario. Um, I think of, has anyone seen the new Aronofsky movie, Noah? Um, we can talk about that later, but I love, uh, one thing that I love on Aronofsky's version of Noah is, um, after all the flood stuff, you see Noah just sort of go into a cave and start drinking because what would you do if every living creature on the earth had just been killed and you had spent, you know, 240 days in a boat and now all of a sudden you're washed ashore without really any purpose. Um, and I think the, the idea of Abraham's eyes being darkened would similarly um, seems to resonate there. And I think... We see Isaac, um, who will become the victim, and Abraham, who will become guilty as they're going up to the mountain. And as Abraham is watching Isaac and is about to kill his son as a sacrifice, um, 
We can think, too, of God's fatherhood, looking down on Abraham, and God is about to um, ruin his life by making Abraham commit this act. And once they get up to the top of the mountain, God saves both people, the perpetrator and the victim. Um, Not that God says you don't have to sacrifice. The sort of command of God the Father isn't gone, but there's a much more earth salvation, a substitution there. So those are a few themes in the story that interested me and how ultimately Abraham will have his sort of ethics ripped from him so that everything is completely reliant upon God. He'll have no crutch except for um, divine providence and gratuity as when the ram, ram comes in. Um, Dave. Um, we can see... Uh, yeah, the n- numbers are taking on here. <laughs> so, I'm just going to kind of look over and finish my part of this, and then we can discuss a little bit, like we would with any other kind of story. Um, so, yeah, we have sacrifices, substitution, and we also have um, the ram being required for death. And Abraham identifies with the ram, too. It's a being dead before God, as well as being saved from the fire. Um, Another interesting thing is that mountains are symbols of coming in contact with God in the Bible. In this sort of ancient cosmogony, you go up to get to God because God is spatially up there. And often, especially in the Old Testament and even sometimes in the New, it's God's judgment that someone encounters when they go up to find him. And so we, but God's judgment is deflected onto the ram. And obviously there's um, all kinds of directions Christians have gone with this in terms of the ram being Christ. So that's another place we can go to. But this story is different from all of the other ones in Genesis in the way that a lot of times in Genesis we see the way that people should be living, the law which throws their actual existence into sharp relief. God's command to not eat of the tree is what allows us to recognize Adam's eating of the tree as sin. Ethics undergirds the story um, in a lot of these, and this is the one story where ethics is, as Kierkegaard says, suspended. Not completely done away with, but canceled for a moment. Um, But anyway, we can just sort of discuss this and talk about it a little bit, because again, I think with stories the best sort of thing to do is to just go around and get different perspectives and so I don't know do y'all have any what are y'all's thoughts murder 
Where do you go with that? What do you think about that? Um, I'll think on that for a second. Um, the other thing is we can address each other too. It doesn't just have to be me talking to individuals. Um, so if, does anyone have any thoughts on John's? John, back to your...
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I, I mean, when I read the story, too, I think that from the outset, we, we have to see God as kind of an arbitrary monster. Later we learn that he's not, but it's, it's only in retrospect. You know, as we're climbing up the mountain with Abraham, um, it's really hard to not feel like God is arbitrary. And Abraham has faith anyway, right? He doesn't reject God. And I think this is why it's actually called faith, as Abraham says, this runs counter to everything I know, um, but having been a nomad and having been progressively sort of stripped of his ego and selfhood, I think that perhaps Abraham is in a position to say this is horrifying, you know, a scandal, a stumbling block to all that I know, um, but, but maybe all I know isn't that important. Um, and I think as readers, we can't get to quite the same point of subordinating our judgment as Abraham was because he had been sort of led to this place by God for much of his life. And a lot of us, I think, are on different paths. But as we're following him up the mountain, I think it's impossible for me not to view God as arbitrary there. Yeah. Um, also, I don't want to get too into theology. I mean, I'm far too tempted to go there normally. Um, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Don't we all do... That was one of Kierkegaard's scenarios because, um, and maybe we, I don't know if we'll end up agreeing on this one or not, but we can just sort of bracket that discussion and I'll give briefly my opinion. For now, it seems to me like the entire book is, his main point is that there can be a relation to God that suspends ethics, um, that the ethics can be relativized to something more absolute than ethics, a lot of which tied into him trying to argue against Hegel and a lot of the sort of idealists who saw ethics as the ultimate, and Kierkegaard was saying um, there's something more. So I think 
Perhaps one of the reasons that Abram's eyes would have been darkened, um, maybe even after the salvation, um, or salvation with the ram here, is the fact that he is has made the decision to go against everything that he knows. There's this loneliness because how does he communicate that to someone? If he ends up killing his son, how does he communicate that to someone? Everybody would have looked at him the same way they looked at the woman in Texas. She was acquitted for insanity. And Abraham just would have been a crazy person. So if ethics are one of the ties that bind all of us together and a major part of the fabric of the world in which we live communally, um, when that fabric is... It's not even that the fabric's teared asunder, it's just that Abraham has removed himself from it. Um, He's sort of been forced to reject some of that by God. And I'm still not sure why, and one of Kierkegaard's big points, too, is that... um, no one understands Abraham. It's, it's hard. John, your original question about the Ten Commandments. It's really hard to say, but I think the best guess that I could take um, is just that we're moving in a direction where some sort of vertical relationship to God and relationship of dependence upon him will begin to sort of trump any human reason. Sorry, how I got a little carried away there. Did I address your question? I think how would we feel if we had been through that? You know, not how how would I feel? How would you feel? I think it's totally a matter of individual constitution. Um, but I think that empathizing there is a start. I would go through the rest of my life. I think a more lonely person after having had this experience that you can't really communicate to anyone. Um, and I could also see myself being kind of bitter at God for being put through that for no real reason. I can also see myself as, amidst that bitterness, having maybe some degree of more faith because God saved even from that. But this is an extreme. The Bible, after this, talks very little about Abraham as a character. This is the culmination of this father of the nation of Israel's um, journey, and we don't find out much about his life afterward, but I don't know, I think how would I think, you know, how would I feel, how would you feel, is be a good way to sort of start thinking about that question. I mean, the Bible, I guess, would make the claim that God really was speaking to Abraham and she was hearing voices. Um, but 
she may have heard, you know, the voices in her head just as clearly as Abraham heard God's. And that's another, that's another very difficult part of this story, which is one of the most kind of difficult and paradox-ridden ones in Genesis, is what does make Abraham different? In some sense, he is. I mean, in terms of self-renunciation, he is offering up um, both his sort of spiritual justification because this sign is the token of God's promise, um, the culmination of it. He's offering up his legacy, um, regardless of whether or not he actually does become guilty by the standards of the law, he will feel like he is for a very long time. And again, I think empathy is, is a key there rather than just... The, you know, big picture theology. Um, so, yeah, he's, he, he's offering all of this up. He's renouncing it. Um, it's sort of a death of him along with a death of his son. Um, and then the ram. The ram. Um, so sacrifice. And another interesting thing, if it were just a test of how much God loved him, um, there really wouldn't be a reason for the ram, right? He would just, Abraham would raise a knife and God would say, okay, just wanted you to show me that you would go home. Um, But the ram shows that Abraham's call to offer that up um, wasn't just a test. It was also had some basis in reality. It was a test, but also something was owed to God or some sort of death or propitiation um, had to be offered by Abraham. Something there was owed. And I think the fact that the ram still ended up having to be sacrificed um, gives us a couple of things to the story. One, I think it gives us a place where ethics very much holds and not maybe ethics in the should I lie or not, you know, um, 
should I lie or not mentality, but ethics in the sense of this sort of moral structure to the world where something is owed to God. Um, and I think the other interesting thing about the rem is that's what, sort of parallel to that, that's what takes the arbitrary element out of it, makes it more than just a test. Um, and it's hard to say what exactly that more is. I think that's one of the really interesting questions that the story poses. Do you have any theories? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, the part about the rim, I wasn't planning on getting that into it. I can check in here and see what I said about it if y'all give me a second. Um, yeah, so um, there's an element of the sort of first, one of the first sacrifices was God um, killing an animal to give Adam and Eve clothes. They were ashamed when they fell and they had to cover up the way we naturally respond to shame by sort of hiding ourselves, putting on fronts. Um, clothes being the symbol for this in Eden. And I think sacrifice um, does to some extent function that way still to take away shame. I mean, that's one of the places it's rooted. One of the first places we see it in Genesis. Um, so if an animal is slain to provide clothes, then that can also um, become a symbol for what makes someone um, lovable or righteous before God. And then there's also the idea of blood as um, feudal payment in the way that pretty much all world religions have had some sort of cultic payment to God. Um, but the idea seems to be that God gave Abraham his son, so Abraham owes his son to God, owes his life and legacy and promise and blessing to God. Um, and so God calls in on that, God calls in on that debt, and as soon as Abraham's about to finally render that to God, God says, no, you can, you know, take the ram instead. It's over there in the thicket. Um, I'll provide that. As Abraham says, walking up the mountain, hoping against hope. You know, God will provide the sacrifice. In some sense, God already has provided the sacrifice by giving Abraham a child. But um, Abraham is hoping for a new sacrifice, some kind of reckoning to be given in place of his own blood and blessing. And um, in some sense, not too much of a stretch to say justification there, because that's what Abraham's son is to him. The, you know, the main content of Abraham's relationship with God is the promise of the Son. I wonder about the, the topic was narrative. Yeah. Now narrative could have worked on it. The whole Flannery O'Connor thing about the, the best story for this paraphrase mm -hmm. the evidence. Um, and I remember a long time ago since I read Peter Sherman, I'm not but it, it, I felt like Peter Hegart was, yes, he was this man 
Right. But he was also keeping uh, keeping some relief valve closed in the story and not letting me find this pressure that's in the, not letting me release that before it does its work on me. Does that make sense? And I wonder if the thing is yeah. we have to we have to interpret, we have to do this work. But when we do it too when we're satisfied we we've exhausted the story and yeah. I think, I think that's an excellent point. Um, and part of it, too, Kierkegaard didn't, um, as far as I know, he, the main reason he set out was not to give an account of the story, but to write something that was going to make all of the sort of Hegelian idealists look like they were at variance with Christianity, or at least that Christianity put some pressure on their ethical systems. But the ram is one thing Kierkegaard doesn't do, for instance, um, he pretty much leaves that untouched because the act of absurdity of um, killing one's son is his main um, content. It's actually been a while, maybe a year or two, since I've read Fear and Trembling, but writing a book on 12 stories from the Bible, it's impossible not to um, refer to it some in the Abraham story. But I agree with you. Um, I mean, one definition of a story could be that which is not sayable or especially not replaceable by um, prose. And it does explanation, I think, ideally. If it's, you know, if it's bad explanation, it will just exhaust the meaning, like moralistic interpretations. Well, all this story really means is that we should be ready to give anything to God. Um, or in literature, there's all these sort of postmodern theory-focused interpretations where you... Um, take a story and sort of fit it into some paradigm. Um, and, yeah, I think that ideally any analysis or explanation of a story should serve to just get us more in the story's world and to be able to sort of feel its mystery um, more acutely, in some sense to make the ineffable more present to us rather than replace it with words. Um, so yeah I, I, I feel like there's a little bit to be desired there too um, it's still an excellent effort with a really difficult story and a really smart guy but I get the same feeling that you do there Was it Agamemnon's daughter or something? Something about like a wind for the ships or something? 
for him to be able to back Troy and then get a kind of right. percentage of this or that kind of, kind of thing. But I mean, typically, you know, it's like, I mean, if we got to take care about people who sleep for his son and then start to die and then really is being left to die. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Because um, you, you think, why would the God we Christians believe in um, actually, yeah, demand more psychologically? Um, and again, that's another question that I'm not going to try to explain away, but it seems like something of the totality of what God demands of us. Um, which prevents us from ever really meeting the standard. You know, it just sort of puts us in a position of desperation, puts us on our knees. Um, and a lot of times with these characters in Genesis, you don't, I mean, it, the story a lot of times, you don't see their vices getting better. Jacob, um, who will be Abraham's grandson, um, Jacob never really gets that much better. He's sort of a swindler and a little too clever his entire life, but you do see real, actual good change with him growing progressively sort of more humble and more recon more recognizing of his own sin and more dependent upon God. Um, I say that because I think that Jacob, in my view, Jacob is the most fleshed out character in Genesis, so it's easiest to observe that with him. But I think here, too, you have something like a Reduction to absolute dependence um, on the parts of both Abraham and Isaac. And the fact that we owe God everything, if God were just testing him, then that there wouldn't really be any reality to the deliverance of the Lamb. But if we view it as an actual, Abraham did owe God that in some sense, that God was partially justified even in asking that then the ram as substitution can take on um, thanks, fresh meaning. But whenever you get into atonement theology and what's going on between like, God the Father and God the Son, it gets really weird. Um, but. Any other thoughts or questions? Well, um, I will be around if anyone wants to talk about it. This is like all I've been thinking about for the last <laughs> six or eight weeks. Um, so very much on my mind. But, yeah, thank you all for um, coming. And, yeah, thanks for your comments, too. Enjoyed it.